I'll have what she's having. I love relationships. I love romantic comedies. I love love. We don't know what Cinderella looked like because she's not real. Yes, they freaking got it. Really earn that happily ever after at the end. Change the writing. It's not that hard. Hello, hopeful romantics, and welcome to another episode of What She's Having, presented by Meet Cute, where a glass of rosé isn't required, but it's certainly encouraged. I'm your host, Ashley Eskew, and our guest today is Olivia Quartero Briggs. Olivia is a prolific television writer for shows like The Arrangement on E! Oh, I really miss that. And currently Queen of the South, as well as a comic book writer, so much cooler than I am, well known for Mary Shelley Monster Hunter and the upcoming Silver Linings out May 12th. And if I'm a geek out, it looks so good. But my favorite of her credits, well, besides mom to two truly adorable children, is that she is a frequent contributing writer to Meet Cute. With her three-part story, Mile High, as well as Meet Cute Show's first series, That Summer, currently on its third season. If you haven't heard That Summer, I highly encourage you to head over to Meet Cute Show's and to take a listen. If you're a fan of rom-coms or coming-of-age stories or female scientists or women stepping into their authentic selves or the 90s and early 2000s, which let's be real, if you're listening to this podcast and you're not a fan of any of those things, like, you're probably my dad. So you will not want to miss it. That is why it is my absolute honor to introduce the Brilliantly bold, Olivia Quartero Briggs. Ah, okay, so the interview has started. All right. <laughs> Is that okay? Just to be clear, yes, let's do it. Okay, so first I want to know, how did you start this whole journey as a writer? I was always a storyteller. I remember I grew up in New York City. You know, before I could read, I remember I'd be riding on the subway and there were all these ads, you know, on the top of the subway train cars and being so frustrated that I couldn't read them. I just wanted to read them. And then almost immediately when I started to learn how to write, I wanted to write my first novel which I attempted to do. It's terrible. It's about like a girl and her cat. And she, it's hysterical though. I used to spend every day, like writing a chapter or something and I couldn't spell at all. I also, I went to a school called St. Anne's amazing school. It's a private school in New York city because my father taught there. So I was a faculty brat, but they didn't want to teach spelling young because they thought it would stifle our creativity because it was like a really hippy dippy school. So I couldn't spell it all. So I would write these things phonetically and then I would give it to my dad to read to me at night. So my bedtime stories, a lot of times were him reading me what I had written, reading all the misspellings. Oh my and it God. was hysterical. I, I have it. I still have it. And one of the sentences, I remember my dad and I just dying laughing, like tears streaming down our faces. The two little girls, they're like running through the field. And one of them is like, cause they're, they're running to the kittens, right? So I'm going to, I'm going to show you my kitten. And one girl asked the other one, what, so what's her name? And the other girl says, I meant to write Virginia, but <laughs> she says, her name is Virginia, because that's where she was born. <laughs> <laughs> that worked so well so, still. 
Yes, it was amazing. My dad and I were dying. So I tried to write my first novel in third grade, rife with misspellings. Very, very boring. No one wants to read it. But regardless, it was a first attempt. And then another thing I did, I used to love scary movies. Oh, I loved them. And I wanted to make up scary stories. And I lived on 43rd and 9th, not far from uh, the Hudson River. And docked there was this, it's this huge aircraft carrier called the Intrepid, which has now been turned into a museum. And so we used to go to the Intrepid and I found it very creepy, particularly like the, um, the underwater suits that they used to wear. And so I concocted this horror story about a couple kids that end up spending the night in the Intrepid. Thinking about it now, it's actually pretty fun. Maybe I should actually write that. But anyway, I was so just I thinking had... that. <laughs> so I had all my little classmates sit around in a circle. The teacher turned off the lights and I told the intrepid to the class. And so that's my my first introduction as a storyteller. It was much more theatrical. I like to create experiences for, for people. So not only did I try and write a novel, but I loved storytelling. And then I would do this weird thing in my room where I would like, like I said, try and create experiences for people. So one of them that I remember designing was like a rocket ship. My, you have to keep in mind, my father was a set designer. So I grew up in theater. So this was like very natural to me. There was a chair in the middle of my room and I hung a curtain around it. And I had some sort of recorded thing in headphones. I was always recording things. So that would play. And then we had this crazy vacuum, you know, with one of those um, like rug spinners underneath. And I would tr strap that rug spinner part to the underside of the chair so that when I turned the vacuum on, it felt like a rocket ship. <laughs> and then in college, I knew I wanted to major in theater. I love theater. Um, but I also wanted to, at first, uh, I, I kind of dabbled in creative writing. I took one class in creative writing at Oberlin College. And then I remember talking to one of the professors and I mentioned my love of the beat poets. And he said, oh, we don't like those here. And I was like, peace. I'm like, that was, at 18, that was it for me. I was like, you don't like Kerouac. I don't like you. This is never going to work. I'm just going to focus on theater. So that's what I did. I focused on theater and my boyfriends. And that's what got me through uh, college. And then I immediately came out to Los Angeles after college and did exactly what my mother told me not to do. And I bought a, a shitty convertible um, in New York. And I drove cross country with my girlfriend and we broke down in Utah, which was terrifying. I had never met Mormons before and they were quite lovely and they rebuilt my entire car for me um, in like the span of three days, got us back on the road. And when I got out to LA, Acting was the focus and I was doing a lot of auditioning and I was booking little things here and there, um, but I was getting really bored waiting for someone to put me in front of the camera. So I jumped behind the camera and I started working in camera department, which it was fascinating for me. And I knew I could get into it because camera department was all populated by guys. And they thought it was really adorable that this girl in her twenties wanted to lug around equipment and, and set up cameras and stuff. And so I took advantage of that. And I was like, you think this is cute, but I'm giving myself a grade A education here and I'm making money. So jokes on you. Yeah. Well done. And yeah. And I, I had this great experience actually uh, with this phenomenal director, real eccentric kid. He had written this film that was a road trip movie 
Through the Loneliest Road in America, which is in uh, Nevada. So he wanted the entire cast and crew to go on the same adventure as the characters throughout the film. So we like literally did the road trip that the characters did in the movie while filming it, which was crazy. We never got more than four hours sleep a night. And we drove all over um, Nevada, which is quite big and vast and kind of scary. We we did get run out of at least one town, um, but for all the right reasons. One of the producers was Indian and there was there was this bar that we had bought out and there was like some altercation between him and the guy that worked at the bar and we stood up for him and that was it. And we were like, okay, we need to leave the next morning. It was really crazy. Oh, so um, different than the Mormon experience. So different than the Mormon. They were really, really lovely. They did. It was funny. They did attempt to speak Spanish to me at one point. Mm. My mother is Spanish and Dominican. I do not speak Spanish. At the time when it happened, it was like shocking to me, but then I realized like they were probably trying to be courteous. (laughs) I was like, no, you can just speak English to me. But yes, very long story short, um, I ended up ADing. I worked my way from camera department to ADing, uh, which is for those of you who don't know, it's a first assistant director. You organize the entire shoot, you keep everything moving and all of the hatred that people feel towards the director and want to express towards the director, you step in and absorb. So you are a hate sponge trying to keep everybody on track. And it can be a really gratifying job if you're working with the right team but I was always working for like first time directors on very very low budget shoots where like everyone's cranky and it was just it was killing me and there was one night I was literally crying in the bathtub at the end of the night because my legs hurt so much that I couldn't stand anymore I think we had been on set for like 16 18 hours and my boyfriend at the time who would become my husband was like I don't think this is working for you. (laughs) And I was like, it's not. And I knew if I were to continue on this path, I would never be able to have a family the way I wanted to and to have a life. And it was right around that time, serendipitously, that literally a trophy arrived on my doorstep. And I had won first place at the Flint Film Festival, best screenplay. I had submitted, of course, but I hadn't heard anything. I had no idea that I had placed, let alone won. And so I you know, gave my tearful acceptance speech to no one in my courtyard in Hollywood. And that was it. That was the moment where I was like, maybe this thing, this writing that I've only ever been doing as a hobby, this thing that no one ever had to pay me for that I love, maybe that's the job and everything else is everything else. Um, So I decided I was going to go back to school because I'm a, I'm a big proponent of education, no matter how much it costs you. Uh, and so it took me two years, but I got into NYU. Um, at the time, they had a campus in Singapore. And they said, well, we don't have room for you in New York, which is just code for like, we don't want you in New York. But this campus over here that no one wants to go to is desperate. So you want to go there? And I was 28 at the time. I wanted to get my master's before I was 30. So I was like, sure. Let's hit it. Let's do it. I got married 10 days before moving to a foreign country and neither me nor my husband, uh, our, our parents are not together. So like there was no one around to tell us, listen, the first year of marriage is really hard. Oh, wait, you're moving to a country you've never been to before and doing a graduate program. Like that's going to be really hard. We were just like, this is going to be like a honeymoon. And it was not. That's incredible. I mean, First of all, it's clear how wonderful a storyteller you are. That was just such an epic introduction. Oh, <laughs> I could go on. Please stop me. I tend to babble. I No, I loved it. But since this is a podcast about love and you brought up this incredible wedding story, how did you and Scott plan a wedding 10 days before you left for grad school? That's crazy. Well, the whole thing was kind of ridiculous because... 
my husband and I met in January. At the time, I was spending my summers directing fully staged Shakespeare productions with teenagers, which was still, I think, one of the best I things love I've that. ever done. There's, I made a documentary about it. Uh, it's called The Workshop. It was uh, released in 2012. And at the time, the big platform to have your streaming movie on was Apple Movies, whatever, Apple, iTunes, iTunes, iTunes. iTunes. That, I'm like, what is that thing? <laughs> Um, so yes, it's on iTunes. You can find it there if you're so inclined. Yeah. So I was directing these shows each summer. And at the time I needed to find a new assistant. The assistant I had been working with was doing something else at the time. So I was like, I just met you. I love you. You're an actor. You're great with kids. Why don't you assist me? He was a phenomenal assistant. And we kind of decided that summer, we knew we were going to get married from the night we met. It was very, very strange, but we wanted to get married upstate. It's so beautiful. It's upstate New York. It's the Catskill Mountains. Um, my godmother has a beautiful house up there that I've spent all my summers in growing up. So we knew that's where we wanted to get married. So it was like, well, we can only get married during the summer, right? So time goes by. Obviously, I wasn't like expecting him to propose right away, but I did tell him that when he did propose, I wanted my mother. My mother's a jewelry designer. Um, her company is Olivia B. Jewelry after me. And... I wanted her to design my ring. So he gets in touch with my mom. I'm not exactly sure when this was, how long we had been dating, but it takes my mother forever to get this ring done. She's being a total perfectionist about it. She wants to like source the right stones and blah, blah, blah. And then once it's made, she doesn't feel secure sending it because, oh, what if it gets lost in the mail and the insurance and blah, 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 blah. So Scott is losing his mind. I don't know any of this is going on and I'm losing my mind too because like the deadline's coming up. If you don't propose soon, we can't get married over the summer, right? We have to get this done. This is what we said we we're going to do. So I'm like, I'm such a jerk. I, I had this other little, little gold ring from something and I just put it on his nightstand and I was like, listen, if the ring's not done, here's an option. And so, okay, I've never told this story out loud, but it's worth it because I know this is a podcast about romance. So, okay, I love my husband to death, but there's like some areas. Oh gosh, so I'd put all the, put that aside. I'd put all this pressure on the poor guy. My mother's not getting this ring done. He doesn't know what to do. So it was like one of those days where we're having sex in the middle of the day, which is kind of bizarre now that I think about it two kids later. Cause like, what's that? <laughs> um, but... <laughs> So he starts to kind of like slow down and he's like looking off towards the nightstand. And I'm like, what the hell is he thinking? He starts to reach over towards the nightstand and I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, he's going to do this now. How am I, how am I going to tell anyone? This is not a story I can tell. And he's like, no, will you marry me in the middle? And I'm like, no, what am I going to say? No, though. I want to marry the guy. We got to get things going. I wanted to marry him since I met him. So of course I said yes, but it's like, oh my God, how am I ever going to tell the story? So yes, tearful, whatever. I'm saying, I'm like, Scott, what am I going to say to my mom? Thankfully, my father has never asked. So yeah, that's the story of how my husband proposed. And then in terms of the wedding, we did the entire thing ourselves. I had a woman, uh, a local woman who I knew, I had worked with her daughter quite a bit and I had worked with her on a design for my dress. I had sent her fabric, my measurements, everything that she was going to make my dress there. I go in for my first fitting, totally bizarre. I wasn't nervous at all. I almost passed out. I almost fell right on the floor. I have no idea. I know this happens to women all the time. I had heard about it, but then the kicker is never finishes the dress. What? 
she doesn't finish the dress. It's days before the wedding. I'm trying to get in touch with this woman. She's like, it isn't done. My godmother is like all in a tizzy about it. She sends, we, there's an amazing uh, seamstress that we worked with for the Shakespeare show. She would do all the costumes. So my godmother's very good friends with her, sends her over to this woman's house to get the fabric and finish my dress. And the seamstress, she brings back the the costume designer brings back the fabric. She's like, there's no way she could have made this dress with this fabric. It's not the right fabric. So everyone's losing their minds. This is like two days before the wedding. No dress, right? I, so I'm, I'm in the bathtub and I remember this really distinctly. And I was like, this is really a moment where I'd be totally justified in losing my mind. So I'm going to be super cool right now. And I'm not. I'm not going to lose my mind. I'm not going to panic. Everything's going to be fine. I'm going to go shopping. I'm going to find a dress. And it's all going to work out. Thankfully, at the time, and I'm sure this will never happen in my life again, I was a sample size. <laughs> again, I think this was like the day before the wedding. And we drove around upstate New York. There were like maybe three stores that sold wedding dresses. Because it's upstate, like you're not going to find those. You're not going to find like Vera Wangs or anything, right? This is not like that kind of territory. And they right. were a couple of like polyester dresses but whatever they look cute they passed they were my size and so I ended up having one for the ceremony and then one for uh the reception which was good because we had a, a dancer friend choreograph um a dance number for the two of us to hire and hire my dad surprised us by renting a tent which was phenomenal because it ended up raining the entire day but it was great because it was so intimate you know we were all in this tent on my godmother's front lawn of her farm and we were all trapped in there together in the rain and the food was absolutely brilliant. It was the best thing about the wedding and what we spent the most money on. There's this uh, wonderful man in the Catskills. Um, his name is Jonah and he owns the Quarter Moon Cafe and his mother owns the Good Cheap Food next door in Delhi. And between the two of them, they've like totally monopolized the awesome food market in the town. And we had like salmon and brisket and lots of cheese and lots of booze. It was fabulous. And a lot of my students came, my Shakespeare students, and we told them that they could spend the night in the farm, in the wedding tent. Love that. Yes. So they, they all brought their sleeping bags. So after the reception was over, they had, you know, a little like camp out in our wedding tent. And then yeah, 10 days later, we were flying to Singapore. Whoever is writing the screenplay of your life is nailing it. Or just has like a really good sense of humor because that like dress fiasco was, was, it was a little insane looking back. I mean, I'm also still thinking about the sex proposal. Like it must've been great sex for him to be like, this is the moment, <laughs> not even after, but in the middle, this is the moment. In the middle. <laughs> or like, it was like so subpar in that moment that he was like, how can we mix things up? <laughs> I'm bored. <laughs> Oh my God. God bless him. I love that. Yeah. So you've worked in many writer's rooms at this point, but one of your first was the arrangement. Yes. I'm so curious what discussions about love and relationships were going on in that room? Well, that's what's really interesting about that show and why I really, really wish that it had continued. It was so unfortunate that it didn't. It was a bit of a shakeup over at E! when they decided they didn't want to do scripted anymore. Because the relationship between Kyle and Megan, you know, and Jonathan Abrahams was the, was the showrunner for that. He really wanted the romance between them to be real. Everything else in their world could be plastic, could be fake because it was Hollywood. But between them, 
it was it was a real romance. They were really falling in love. And so it was really a delicate balance of incorporating all of these dark elements of their world. What's true? What's not? Who's out to get you? You know, who's really true to you? But at the center of it all is a very, very real love affair with real stakes and real consequences. And it's smart because without that, I mean, the show never would have worked. You needed something that was authentic and true in order to establish the stakes of that world. And so um, that for all of us was the pivot point of the entire series. You know, we can get as dark as we want and as weird as we want. Jonathan is a huge proponent of weird, which I love. I mean, anytime someone had an off the wall pitch, and I had a lot of off the wall pitches, um, you think that they're just going to get thrown in the garbage or everyone's going to be like, you know, what are you talking about? And those are the things that would really make Jonathan sit back and think, you know, he really liked the weird and he embraces that in all of his writers and it's why we're there because we all have our own unique weird so yeah you could get as weird as you want as dark as you want as long as you recognize that the the stakes surrounding this love are very real then then that's where the show lived and then what was it like transitioning from that more that soapy thriller romance to queen of the south yeah queen of the south uh is there's definitely not a romance at the center of that. Although <laughs> I got very lucky by the time I came on the show, there is not a spoiler alert because episodes have aired and you already know it. Uh, there is a romance between the characters of Kellyanne and Potet. And that's really fun because it is such an unlikely pair. And not only that, but Kellyanne is, she's the levity of the entire show. There aren't too many characters that make you laugh in Queen of the South. It's just not the nature of the show. Right. Um, anytime she's on screen, there, there's never not a high stakes moment in Queen of the South. It's just how it's built. But you can always get a laugh out of her. She's it's, she's chatty. The character herself has a sense of humor. And she's also a bit of a fish out of water in this world. She's like a cousin Greg from Succession. <laughs> Yes, except she's not a loser. Um, <laughs> but I love Greg. Don't get me wrong. I mean, Greg is Greg is my favorite. I actually have a T-shirt with Greg on it. It's uh, something about, oh, my God, to make a Tomlet, you have to break a few Craig's. Oh my God. Remember this line from the show? Yes. Okay. Yes. Oh I love them. They're my favorite. But I love Kellyanne. I always loved her and I loved writing her because more and more I found that my sensibilities as a writer, I'm I'm moving into a lighter territory. It doesn't mean that my work will have any less stakes, but I do like incorporating humor. So I got to write a lot of scenes between Kellyanne and Pote surrounding, you know, what's happening in their lives. And um, yeah, everyone will know by now that uh, Kellyanne is pregnant. Um, but, you know, fans will know that in Queen of the South, there's also some underlying romantic tensions between Teresa and James. And they have a nice big arc for season five. And I won't spoil anything for anybody. But of course, we would be very irresponsible writers if we didn't pay some of that off. So for those of you out there who are Queen of the South fans, you can expect a little juice out of that relationship. Oh, nice. I yeah. can't wait for that. That's a fun romance. It's really, it's it's sexy when you see um, a romance between two people who are trying not to be together. I mean, that's always really fun, trying to resist one another. Right now I'm watching uh, Carnival Row and I just started it. I've never seen Have that. Have you not seen that show? No. Oh, what it's Orlando it? Bloom and I'm forgetting the actress's name, but she's gorgeous and she's a fairy. Wait, is that Cara Delevingne? I think I've seen the trailer. I think so. With yeah, my yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, I might be yes. saying her name wrong because. No, and it, well, you've got her haircut right. 
I'm so curious, how is writing for television different from creating and writing for a podcast? Well, I started in TV first and podcasts um, came into my life later. I think the biggest difference uh, with the podcast is obviously there's no visual component. So um, the little tricks of the trade that you can kind of rely upon uh, in a visual medium, you don't have anymore. And especially when it comes to romance, I feel like there's so much in a look. There's so much you can identify with when you see someone who is silently longing or, you know, whatever it is. There's so much of what happens to us as human beings in the context of our romantic relationships is internal. So the biggest challenge I thought when I was writing for Meet Cute was to externalize that and how do you maintain a, a natural, realistic conversation and still infuse it with all of that romantic, dramatic tension that audiences love? Because I see the way the characters move and I see what they do. And you don't want to have one character saying to the other one all the time, like, why are you looking at me with those longing eyes? Or, you know, why are you putting your hand on your chest like you can't breathe when you look at me? You know, you, you can't have any of that. So you have to just kind of hope that your audience are imagining the body language through the emotion that's coming through the characters. There were a few amazing moments where with your work specifically, I felt like you put me in the world so directly. But before I fangirl out about that summer, where did the idea for it come from? Well, initially I had talked to the folks at Meet Cute about doing long form stories. Um, and it was something that they were really interested in doing. And we needed a concept that was kind of consistent with the brand, obviously, but something that we could, you know, it could go on for as long as we wanted or as short as we wanted. Um, so we agreed that we would do, we would do six 15 minute increments that would constitute a complete story, but we could then pick up with them you know, later on. So I pitched them a bunch of different, um, a bunch of different ideas, but this one specifically, I've always wanted to write something about teens during the summer. There are, there's so much content out there with teens in high school. Like school is just this definitive part of life. But I find when I look back on my childhood, the moments that really defined me, the times that I changed the most, grew the most, that all happened over the summer. Summers were epic when I was younger. I was always like doing Shakespeare and, and goofy stuff like that. But the romance specifically, the romances that happened over the summer, those are the ones that you that really, really stick with you. And so I thought, why aren't there more shows that just take place? We keep picking up with these kids summer after summer of their lives rather than school year after school year and skipping the summer. <laughs> That's a great point. And um, in terms of the, the time of it all, technology has moved so fast that I find I really don't know what it's like to be a teenager right now. I, I of course, I can imagine it and it would certainly be a challenge writing about it, but so much of their lives is wrapped up in social media and kind of promoting themselves that way and that content. And because I used to work with kids, some of them are friends of mine on social media. Some of them I've had to unfriend because I look at the things that they're posting sometimes. And I'm like, oh my God, like this is out there forever. Like, you know, cool it, put your boobs away. I don't know. I, like, it makes me very nervous, but I feel for them. I, I, I thank my lucky stars that social media was not around when I was a high schooler 
because Lord knows how I would have like speared myself <laughs> for life. I think cyberbullying is super insidious and really scary. And not only that, I mean, the, the threat of school shootings, like don't even get me started. I, I don't know what that's like. I have young kids and I know my own anxieties with sending them to school each day, but I don't really know what it's like to be a teenager now. And when I thought about that, I also thought about, well, teenagers today don't really know what it was like when I grew up. Also like the nineties are hot right now. Let's not kid ourselves. So I thought maybe young people out there would want to know what a bogey like me um, experienced in high school. And also I kind of wanted to celebrate the fact that, you know, I, I did grow up in New York city. The streets were my playground. And I think it's a really, really unique way to grow up. And we went back and forth on whether or not it was going to be a period piece. And for me also, because we're dealing with a podcast where I feel like, again, with you're not, if you have a phone conversation in there, you're not seeing both sides of it. Um, there's, I, I, di- I wanted the story to be analog. I didn't want to have to deal with too much technology um, with a medium that's already simplified, right? Because it's only audio. And so I thought it would be a really clean way uh, to do it. And because we have music that we could still convey the, the tone and the feeling of the time uh, without that. So that's where the concept came from. And they went with it and gave me a lot of freedom in crafting the characters in the story. And it was it was really a fun ride. Do you relate to any of those characters? Val, is your Natalie? Well, let's see. One of them is a Latina. One of them's a writer. And one of them is a jokey prankster. Um, <laughs> yes, I relate to all of them. I feel like they're all different facets of me and and who I am. And that's what I endeavor to give all of my characters. Not to play favorites, but the character that I relate to the most is probably Izzy, just in terms of when I was growing up, um, my default was always happy. I was always kind of like the happy jokester of the bunch but that wasn't always like what was cool I mean this was a time when like my friends were still very much like in the grunge era and like Kurt Cobain loomed large right so like being happy all the time and like let's have sleepovers until we're 18 like wasn't really cool so Izzy is very much that side of me that she doesn't want to grow up too fast I also went through a period of like you know, trying to find myself romantically and like probably hooking up with too many people. So I, I felt her there when she, you know, through season two, and she's just like kind of trying to find out who she is through the women that she dates. But how often do we get a woman exploring her sexuality through casual sex throughout a rom-com? I loved it. Oh, good. Particularly a queer woman. Oh, it really stuck with me the whole time. I was like, I'm living for this storyline. Oh, I'm so glad. Well, that's really good to hear because um, in the third season of that summer, it's really Izzy's story. I, you know, the first season is very much Val's season because it introduces, to me, the central story, debunking the whole myth that was Blaine and getting together with Danny, who I love. Oh, my God, I Danny um and uh and then the second season was very much Natalie's story because it's her book tour and it's her you know her romance and kind of figuring out that she actually she's a romance writer with the fear of intimacy which was fun to write and then season three we actually like spoiler spoiler alert we go to Oberlin yay um for the summer that another glimpse into you yes very much so but Izzy's spending the summer there because she's working on an experiment which is also an excuse to get closer to her crush 
and what she kind of discovers about herself and she's she's settled down at this point like she's she's looking for someone to to stick with her for the long run and she's not having a lot of luck she's been alone for a long time she's gotten her heart broken at this point because we catch up with the girls every two years so a lot's happened in that regard but yeah so i think izzy the most and then you know but there's definitely elements of of val and natalie that come directly from my own personal experience you know, even in the way they they talk and think about things. And it's also wish fulfillment for me. Like, how cool would it have been to like have a career that young? Oh. You know, and what would that have meant? There was a time when I had the option of doing that. I was like auditioning for movies in New York. I auditioned for What Women Want. It was so funny because when I went to the casting, there were signs everywhere that said, meet the parents. I didn't know what meet the parents was. I thought, oh my God, my parents are supposed to be with me. What am I going to do? I can't <laughs> Um, and I got like three callbacks or something. And at one point the casting director said, listen, you're really good. I would love to help get you an agent. And I was 15 or 16 at the time. Was that for the role of Mel Gibson's daughter? Yeah. I love that. Okay. Continue. Amazing. Yes. I mean, but you see who got it. I mean, she was already kind of a known entity in the world. So I, 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 I didn't get it and I wouldn't have gotten it, but this casting director really did like me and she offered to get me an agent. And I said, no. Huh? I know. And it was so crazy. It was like everything I had wanted, but I also, because I had grown up in New York, I also knew kids who had careers young and I, I wasn't ready to give up my childhood. And it's so weird looking back that I had the wherewithal to know that because me now would have been like, what's wrong with you? (laughs) But that was my choice at the time. So I guess for me, Natalie is what if I, what if I went with it? Hmm. What if I went in another direction? Where would that have led me? And so it's fun to get to explore that through her. And with Val, there's something about Val that's very close to my heart. And, um, you know, my mother, like I said, my mother is Spanish and Dominican. Her parents actually met in Spanish Harlem. So like their West Side Story, which is crazy. Unfortunately, um, I, I don't really have a relationship with them, but they didn't teach my mother Spanish. Oh, so yeah. And look, I mean, this is, it's, you got to remember what time this was, you know, being a Spanish speaking person, it was not, uh, they were looked down upon for speaking Spanish. So I think, you know, for them at the time, let's advance our kids. We just want them to be English speakers. We want them to fit in. Uh, my mother and her sister were very light skinned. And so they could do that. And so they were really encouraged to strap on a white identity and to lead with that, you know, regardless of the fact that my mom's last name was uh, Cuartero. And she didn't give me her last name because also my mother was an, it was an actress like in the eighties. And this was the time when like everyone was, you know, giving themselves stage names to make their names sound more Anglo. So Olivia Briggs to her sounded like a great stage name. So that's why we went with that. But You know, I was raised very, quote unquote, white by a mother who wasn't necessarily. And it created a really interesting experience for me growing up that I don't regret. But like, clearly people noticed that I wasn't as white as them. And I would get questions about it all the time. But I had no connection to my heritage whatsoever. I didn't know what to say to them. And so, you know, I asked my mom, she told me what my background was. And then I'm going back to school saying, oh, well, my mom says I'm Spanish and Dominican. I didn't know what that meant. The first time I actually met someone who was really Dominican was when um, I got my first job working at a restaurant when I was like 18 or something. And Dominicans, for the most part, are quite dark. And I'm looking at this girl for for all intents and purposes, looks black to me. And she's like, yeah, I'm Dominican. And I was like, oh my God, I didn't even understand 
that that's what that meant. I didn't know what Dominican was. Wow. Um, when I would go back again, because Dominicans are black, then when I'm telling my friends, you know, I'm Spanish and Dominican, they're making fun of me. Oh, Olivia thinks she's black, this, that, and the other thing, which was not the case. But I just, I decided, you know what? People think this is funny. I'm getting laughed at. I'm getting made fun of. I don't want to talk about this anymore. When people ask me what my background is, when people ask me what I am, I'm going to say I'm from New York. I'm going to say I'm American. I'm not, I'm getting away from that. When I applied to colleges, I didn't check the Hispanic box because I was, I, I was, yeah, I was totally opposed to that. I just, it was other, other, other. I don't want to talk about it. I want to get away from this race thing because people, it's, it's something that got me made fun of. And so it took me a really long time, actually, until like a couple of years ago when I took my mother's name back and put it onto my name professionally. My mother's always been my biggest supporter in my career. And um, I thought it was only right that <laughs> that I should be representing her as well as my father um, when I put my work out into the world and accepting, okay, so maybe I didn't get to know my grandparents. Maybe I didn't get to partake in what it really is to be either Spanish or Dominican, but I am Spanish, Dominican, and white. It is part of what I am. It is part of my experience as an American, but owning that has been something, it's been a very, very difficult struggle for me. So there's something very, very cathartic in having a character that is Dominican from Washington Heights. That's where my mother was born. Um, I lived there for a couple years. When I had my first daughter, my husband and I were living in New York. And like I said, my grandparents met in Spanish Harlem. So to celebrate that area with a character who is distinctly Hispanic. She speaks Spanish. She is Dominican. She's Dominican from the Heights. And she wants more and initially thinks that the way to get more is like what my grandparents thought by thinking, acting, being as white as possible to shed her roots, to become something more and realizing like me that you don't have to do that. And it is okay to assert yourself for whatever you are, regardless of how much of the culture you have absorbed. That was what was really cathartic about writing a character um, like Val. And honestly, what was really cathartic also about writing for shows like Queen of the South, getting to safely embody Latinx characters. And in doing so, I think it's really helped me say out loud that I am a Hispanic person. And I am <laughs> and not being ashamed or embarrassed about that. And if you want to make fun of me, like, okay, fine, go ahead. I don't know <laughs> how entertaining it would be, but you know, also just kind of celebrating the fact that thank God I have grown since I was a teenager and used to get embarrassed about those things. So it's also genius that you put that into like the romance that Valentina finds for herself. Mm -hmm. The romance that she finds with Danny is touching on exactly the transformation formation that you're speaking of, really embracing her roots and where she's from and who she is, as opposed to denying that. Is there anything you can tell us about the recently released season of that summer, which will be the first series to be released on Meet Cute Shows? Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah, season three, like I said, it's going to take place at Oberlin. You're going to see the return of some beloved characters who you might not be expecting, uh, but one who comes in very early is Aura. Aura Tomlin comes back, which I'm really excited about because I really liked the actress uh, who played her in season one. Love her. Um, yeah, so she's got she's got a cool role in what's about to happen. And um, we're still predating Facebook, but Izzy is a computer science major and she has uh, constructed basically um, like the first 
online dating system, which is very simple, but it's just an online platform where users can anonymously date one another as part of this social experiment that she's conducting with her roommate. So what's fun about the upcoming season, something very different than we did in previous seasons, is that we are dramatizing texted conversations. But what's super fun about it to me is that the characters don't know who they're talking to in the system. Everyone is anonymous. So sometimes they're talking to characters that they know, that we know, but because they are imagining them differently within the program, you have a completely different voice. So this, this is the kind of season where you can listen to all the way through, but then you might want to go back and listen to again, once you know who's who within the dating system. And listen to again, then you'll be like, oh, of course that was Natalie the whole time. How did I not know that was Natalie? Or of course that was Val. That was so her voice. I didn't get it, you know? So there's going to be some fun um, elements like that in there. And um, there's it's, it's another continuing chapter of the Val and Danny romantic saga, which I am very, very committed to. And I really, really hope we get to do a fourth season because I want Danny to run for office. One of the great things about an ongoing series too, and this happens in television, this happens in podcasts, you discover the talents of the actors that you're working with. Your cast is so strong. They're great. So and strong. the actress that plays Izzy, she's a singer. And I thought, and I think she's also done some rap stuff. So should things continue? I, I'm fantasizing about a rap battle between Danny and Izzy as part of Danny's uh, campaign for office in New York City. Shut <laughs> I know, but that'd be so fun. So meet cute gods, make this season four happen because... I want Danny to campaign and Izzy's going to be like his right-hand girl. Because that's the cool thing about this too, is it's not just the relationship between the girls. These guys that they date and have these love affairs with, or girls that they date and have love affairs with, become a part of their little family. Much like, you know, happens in life and getting to see those relationships continue would be super fun. Oh my God. I love this series so much. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, truly. I was binging it yesterday and to prep for this. And Andrew was like, what is this? What, what is this? And he was like, this one's different than the other ones. And I was like, Olivia wrote it. And he was like, oh, that makes sense. Oh, <laughs> thank you, Andrew. Well, for me, the scene, and I'm, I'm telling you, I legit had tears in my eyes. The scene where Danny breaks up with Val in Europe mm. where he's like, I was in love with you and you ripped my heart out. I, I was, I was getting all the feels and I was shocked because like when you write something, you're very objective when you're listening to it and you're picking it apart. You know, you, you don't want to, but that's what you do. But, oh my God, they got me. They really, really got me. I mean, those two together, it's just magic. And I want to write as much for them as I possibly can. I'm putting into the universe, hoping for a season four. Yes, yes, me too. <laughs> we have some audience questions. Oh my gosh, okay. So John from Ojai wants to know, in addition to television shows, you also write comic books. I, do. I loved Mary Shelley, Monster Hunter, and cannot wait for Silver City. What can you tell us about it? Oh my God, that's so awesome. Um, yeah, so Silver City um, is a project that's been with me for a long time. I had a dream like about 12 years ago now that I woke up in this strange place and I was dead. Um, and I was in the city that I had never been in before. And I was really annoyed because I found out that I had to get a job. I had to get an apartment. This place was a slum. I had to do volunteer work. I was like, how is this the next stage of evolution? And I was like working at a coffee shop and I didn't care about anything. I was really upset. And then one day 
there was this baby that had arrived there. And the professor said to me, oh, we usually just get rid of those because they don't grow or change, right? Because they're dead. And I was like, you're not getting rid of this baby. I'm going to take this baby. I'm going to take care of this baby. And um, time went by in the dream. And I remember feeling in her mouth and her teeth were growing. And I was like, oh, she's still alive up there somehow. I need to get her back. And that's when I woke up. So that's the nexus of this idea. And in Silver City, um, obviously I took myself and I created the character Rue Corrado, who is our very unlikely hero in the story. She's someone who, uh, she's a, a gigantic underdog. She was raised in the foster system, raised to believe that she was nothing. And the real nexus of the story and the heart of it is you know, someone who has been raised to believe that they were less than dirt ends up discovering that they have within them the power to save the world. And, you know, how, how do you then step out of all of your self-doubt and all of your self-hatred and all of your trust issues to really embrace the fact that you are incredible and you can do incredible things, the likes of which you've never imagined before. And, you know, all of these abilities that you have that you thought made you different and bad are actually your greatest strengths. Wow. Um, it's, it's very, very different uh, than my work for Meet Cute. It's darker, uh, but there is a romance at the center of it. It's a very unlikely romance and one that unravels over quite a long period of time. But it's kind of fun and gratifying because as you kind of discover, souls travel cyclically. We've all known one another for a very long time. And uh, romances don't just occur once in a lifetime. Sometimes the same romance can occur over many lifetimes. Um, and that's something that these characters will, will discover. Um, so Silver City is my stab at world building, at fantasy. And uh, it's released on May 12th. And you guys can all tell me how I did <laughs> with book one. Though I say, wait till, you know, read book one through book five and then tell me how I did. This sounds so up my alley. I have already pre-ordered my copy and I encourage- Oh, you're such a love. Same. Thank you. Oh my gosh, of course. <laughs> well, Rowan from Newark would like to know, you've spoken on how comic books are a good medium to sneak in political debates. What larger points of view do you think the genre of rom-coms opens itself up to? Well, for me specifically, um, sexual identity, mm. obviously. Uh, that's, I guess that's kind of an easy one, but I think um, it's really important uh, to get out different viewpoints because romance is not one thing. Romance is many different things to many different people. And I think that type of representation is really important. I've also been able to, through the Meet Cute platform, like we discussed, to tackle issues of race and racial identity. And what I liked about the story is it's not, it's, we're not dealing with racism. We're dealing with racial identity and, and accepting that. There is an element of racism as well, but uh, it comes at you from a very different angle in that Val finds herself in a situation where someone's trying to get close to her because it'll help them get into college, you know? <laughs> so, you know, dealing with those types of relationships uh, when race becomes involved has been something that's really interesting to explore. Also, um, ambition. And I think... You know, in the first the first season of that summer, we really got to tackle a lot of issues. And one of them that I think kind of flew under the radar is that even women 
feel validated artificially uh, by the amount of experience that they have sexually. And I think that a lot of young women deal with this as they're growing up, that they don't feel like they've quite achieved the same level of their peers unless they've had the same amount of sexual experience, you know, completely take off the table. The fact that like people lie, (laughs) they say they have more experience than they do. And then, you know, it's not just guys that don't want to be virgins anymore. Girls have the same issue. And so, you know, Natalie's issue in season one of that summer, just trying to get close to this guy so she can get through with this experience. It's, it's artificial and it doesn't matter. And obviously it's so easy to say coming from an adult perspective, but if there's one thing I could have told myself when I was younger, it's like, don't rush. Like all of these things that are out there for you, they're out there for you to have fun with. So if you're not having fun with them, take a deep breath, take a step back and reassess because love is fun. Sex is fun. It's all supposed to be a good time. That's why our bodies are built to enjoy it. And you know that you are enjoying something when your heart is in the right place with it. You know, if you're, if you're rushing it or you feel, you know, weird about it, or you walk away from the situation feeling like, Oh God, should I have done that? Just take a step back. Cause you have a lot of time. I wish that I knew that. But yeah, so I think romance is a great area to talk about social issues because it's something that we all strive for. It's something we all get lost in. And even those of us like myself that have been married for 10 years, like you still need a good romance story in your life. It's so natural to who we are as human beings. We are programmed to look for love in our lives, to empathize with it, to celebrate it. So, you know, any issues that you can tackle within that medium are really going to sing. I think you just have to make sure that the social message does not become so in your face that you alienate your audience. Keep that romance, keep whatever is at the crux of your story at the forefront and let those social issues evolve because they will naturally much like they do in life. This is the part of our show where we usually do a lightning round with our guests, but we thought with your expertise, it might be fun to do a 90s rom-com based logline game where we give you the logline of the 90s rom-com and you tell us what it is. Good luck. Oh my God, I might be terrible at this, but okay, we'll try. Okay, number one, a high school jock makes a bet that he can turn an unattractive girl into the school's prom queen in just six weeks. Oh my God, Freddie Prince Jr., um, she's all that? You got it. Okay. (laughs) Amazing, off to a good start. (laughs) Okay, number two, a pretty popular teenager can't go out on a date until her ill-tempered older sister does. 10 things I hate about you. Nailed it. Okay. Yes. Here we go. (laughs) Four teenage boys make a pact to lose their virginity by prom night. Oh, is this American Pie or something? Yeah. God, that's what that movie's about? That's what I said when I found the logline. (laughs) It wasn't about the pie episode? That's like all I remember from that. Wow. Okay. That and Eugene Levy's eyebrows. Okay. Now a coming of age teen comedy that is loosely based on Jane Austen's 1815 novel, Emma, with a modern day setting of Beverly Hills. Clueless. Four for four. Nice. That was all the Beverly Hills. I had no idea that that was Emma. (laughs) I had no idea. I was like, I'm never going to get this. And then you said Beverly Hills. Yay. Oh, I'm so impressed. But you know what I watched the other day, which I realized is one of the best rom-coms I've ever seen. And I can't believe it because it's an Adam Sandler movie. Fifty First Dates is a beautiful film. And it is a film. If you can, you know, look outside the really kind of 
racist depiction of a Hawaiian man by what's his name? The one who's like always in those movies, Rob Snyder. Rob Snyder. It was his yeah. fault. It was, it was, yeah, it was the time, which is unfortunate. And so that's a little cringeworthy. But the romance between Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore, it's just beautiful. It was playing at the drive-in. Uh, they have this little pop-up drive-in in La Kenyatta and I took my daughter to see it. And this, it's like such a sign of the times, right? So we're like in the car, it's like COVID obviously. I'm like, you know, I'm always like sanitizing my hands. I start crying, I'm wiping the tears away. I get sanitizer in my eyes. No. So now I'm like really crying. My daughter's like, are you okay? I'm like, it's just a beautiful movie and my eyes are on fire. Finally, what is the greatest act of love you have ever witnessed? The greatest act of love. Wow, this is a big one that I've ever actually witnessed. To take it back a little bit, there was this night we were in New York City. It was over the summer. It was like in the middle of COVID. And my daughter and I, she's almost seven now. She was six at the time. Uh, we like to have like mommy daughter dates, but it was hard because it's COVID, right? So there weren't that many restaurants that were open in the city. Of course, we had to be dining outdoors. We didn't want to be around that many people. And she's a very, very picky eater. So we settled on this Thai restaurant, which I could tell she wasn't wild about, but like she likes rice. And I'm like, they have to have rice. She didn't end up liking the food. I was really frustrated because I had spent money on the food and she didn't want to eat it. We had planned this whole night and like, she, she said to me, she goes, well, let's just go home and tell everyone we had a great time. And I said, no, Quinn, it's okay. It's okay that we had a bad time. Let's just accept that we didn't have a good time and we'll just move on from this, right? And so recently we went out together again and it was like, it was like comedy of errors. It was like, everything was just going wrong. And we were, oh, it was, we were trying to go to another drive-in and it was, uh, we were going to see Ferris Bueller's Day Off and it ended up being much further away than we thought. And there was traffic and we had like gone to pick up food and like the orders were wrong. It was just like, it was just this big mess. And I, I was getting really frustrated. And we, you know, I think as we were driving or something, I said something to the effect of like, Quinn, we might have to just accept that this is going to be another time where we just have a bad time. We just have a bad time. And my daughter was like, okay, mom, well, I really want to have a good time with you. So I can let all of this go if you can. And that's, ugh, it's not easy to do. She was upset with me, probably for a legitimate reason. I was like probably on edge and driving her nuts. She was on edge and driving me nuts. But she just had this moment of like, I can let this go if you can let this go. And like, let's just have this be water under the bridge. And I realized in that moment, and why I say this was a great act of love, she knew that's what I needed. I, and I saw it was honest on her face. She was not, it, she was not angling for anything. It was just purely wanting to have a good time with me. All of this anger and rage and frustration, anger I was feeling at her, the situation, all of it, it went away. And I was able to put all of that bullshit aside and just be in that moment and enjoy it with her. And who cares if we relate to the movie? Who cares if the food wasn't what we wanted? There's more food out there. <laughs> it's like, she was so generous with me in that moment. She could have just been annoyed and sat in the back of the car in her car seat. And she wasn't. And I realized in that moment, it's it becomes very hard as an adult, I think, to change. We get very into our habits, our good habits, as well as our bad habits. And frustration for me is one of my bad habits. I get stuck in there and I get grumpy and it's really hard for me to get out. And I realized in that moment that the love of your children is so strong that it can change you. It can change you even in a second, even the hardest things 
that there are for you to change when someone really loves you. And maybe it doesn't just have to be a child. I don't think it does. When someone really honestly, unconditionally loves you, it can change you in really, really profound ways that you never thought you could change if you just open yourself up to it. So I don't know if that's like the most the most profound moment of love, but I do know that the experience of having a child, and they're not all the time, but there are these moments where you realize how much your child loves and cares about you. And of course you remember because you completely doted on your parents as a child, of course they do. But those moments are so, they're so strong and they're so honest and they're so pure that if you let them, they can make you a better person. And I think anyone, tiny, young or old or somewhere in between that takes the time to put all of their shit aside to help you get through a moment that you're having. I mean, that is such a genuine act of love. I don't know anything that's more giving than that to put your own shit and your own frustrations aside to make someone else's time a little bit better. Um, and I endeavor to be more like my daughter every day in that regard. Me too. I want to be like Quinn now. I know. <laughs> she's a really good kid. And her little sister, she's only, you know, she's, uh, she'll be two in a couple months. But she does something even the older one didn't do. I mean, just today I'm doing dishes in the kitchen and she toddles over to me and wraps her arms around my leg and just says, I love you, you know, just, just to let me know. And um, it's, it's very special. <laughs> and it reminds you that you know it's, it takes two seconds you know again I've been married for 10 years but I don't do that enough I don't just like go over to him enough and just hug him and say I love you how much better would this world be if we just kind of like let each other know those things every once in a while it doesn't it only takes two seconds and it makes such a difference oh Olivia thank you so much this is just yeah the best I am so oh, grateful thank you thank and thank you so much for this opportunity as you know I love to talk <laughs> Are you kidding? Please. I've been trying to get you on the show since it started. And they're like, wait until that summer comes out. Wait until that summer comes out. Oh, well, great. Well, listen, I hope that everybody is loving this summer. Um, but please know it's it's very much a work in progress. And if the seasons do continue, we would love to get feedback from you guys about what it is that you love, maybe something you want to see more of. We can make this an interactive experience. So, you know, send us your questions, your comments, characters you might want to see come back because as long as they open the road for me to go down we can do what we want the sky's the limit either way i'll be writing more for me cute so 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 give me your thoughts and um yeah thank you so much for those of you uh who are looking forward to silver city i am too it's it's gonna be a fun ride and there's more coming in the comic book world as well Ooh, so many good things from olivia thank you so much thank you Mwah. love you Mwah. Woo. olivia man that lady can spin a yarn Okay, you heard it here first. Run, don't walk to meet cute shows. Subscribe and listen to all three seasons of That Summer available wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, I wish I wasn't Izzy like Olivia, but I think we all know I'm a Natalie at heart. So today, Olivia and I discuss The Arrangement, Queen of the South, 51st Dates, and Carnival Row. And if you're a fan of comics, make sure you pre-order Olivia's Silver City from your local comic shop. And as always, wherever you get your podcasts, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. And you know, write to us on Instagram at meetcute or on Twitter at listenmeetcute. I had just 
the best time this week talking to the incredible Olivia, who there are not enough superlatives to describe. I simply adore you. Thank you all for joining us. I'm Ashley Eskew, and... I'll have what she's having. <laughs>